When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. So in this bit of Mark's gospel we're in, this morning, Jesus is meeting a desperate man. He's the father of a boy possessed by an evil spirit, Mark tells us. And this man is suffering. He sees his son suffering terribly and it feels like he can do nothing to help him or stop that suffering. This man's lonely. No one else seems to understand his situation. No one else is able to help him or his son. He's exhausted. He knows he cannot handle the suffering and evil he faces day by day for much longer. And yet, out of that desperation and suffering and exhaustion, this man is actually a powerful picture for all of us of what saving faith in Jesus looks like. And does that most clearly in the words, he cries out to Jesus in verse 24. He says, Jesus, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Now, the writer Barnabas Piper, son of John Piper, has written a whole book that takes its starting point from these words. And in that book, he writes this. He says, these two phrases, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief, they represent the reality for every follower of Jesus. No matter how mature, new, stumbling, or strong, we believe and we don't. We follow and we fail. We are weak and we need help. We've been in Mark's gospel for quite a while now. In many ways, Mark so writes this gospel as a manual for discipleship. He writes it to show us Jesus, but to show us what it means to follow Jesus in this world. 
And I believe Mark records this cry from a desperate man in verse 24, because he knows these are words every follower of Jesus will need to pray as we live for Jesus in this broken world, a world where we're going to experience suffering and doubt and questions and fears. I believe, Jesus, help me overcome my unbelief. I believe in you, Jesus, but I'm just not sure what you're doing right now. I believe in you, Jesus, but I think this is just too big for you to help me with. I believe in you, Jesus, but I'm just not sure maybe that your ways are best for me. I believe in you, Jesus, but I'm actually scared to ask you to help because maybe you can't or maybe you won't. I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I want us to see this morning that as a statement of faith, And it is a cry for help. And every follower of Jesus needs to echo these words regularly in our discipleship of him. Again, there's something liberating about that, actually. I think often we think if we have doubts or questions, we have times of unbelief, we think, well, the best thing to do is just suppress it, just push it down or just avoid it. Keep it hidden, maybe from other Christians, keep it hidden particularly from God. Why? Because we think well, God's going to be angry. God's going to reject me. Other Christians are going to reject me if I talk about my unbelief. But I think this is another reason why the fact that Mark records this prayer of this man for us is just such good news for us. He's giving us the words and the permission to pray this prayer regularly in our lives. Look at how Jesus responds to this man. He doesn't reject him. He doesn't walk away from him. He doesn't get angry at him. He hears this man's cry for help and he helps him. He heals his son. Again, in many ways, this desperate man in Mark chapter nine is a picture for us of saving faith because saving faith is faith in Jesus, not in ourselves. It's a faith based not on what we believe, on our faith, but on Jesus' faithfulness not on what we do, but on what Jesus has done for us. Not on how we feel, but on how Jesus feels for us. This is a prayer that admits weakness. It admits we need help, but it takes that weakness and that need to Jesus and it cries out to him. Even when our faith is weak, Jesus is still strong. So let's look at this really powerful passage in Mark 9 together, Um, starting again at verse 14. So again, last week in the opening section of Mark 9, we were on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus. And on that mountain, Peter, James, and John, three of his disciples, catch a glimpse of who Jesus really is. He is the glorious son of God. He is immortal. He's bathed in light. He's utterly holy, utterly good, utterly beautiful. And for just a moment, these three disciples see Jesus for who he really is. Like Dan put it last week, the transfiguration of Jesus is like a a teaser trailer for Jesus' resurrection, his, his future glory, the new creation he will welcome everyone into who trusts in him. And it must be an amazing experience for Peter, James, and John to have been there. But now in verse 14, it's kind of down to earth with a bump. 
And we, we also saw last week, mountains in the Bible, they're often places where God's people meet with God, where they hear from God, where they see God's power at work. But alongside those mountaintop experiences, coming down a mountain in Scripture is often a time of challenge, often a time when you're confronted with the brokenness of this world. Just think of the two figures that Jesus met with on that Mount of Transfiguration. Moses, when he was up Mount Sinai, having an astonishing time with the Lord, receiving the law, he comes down the mountain for what? To be confronted with the Israelites worshiping a golden calf. That's in the book of Exodus. Or, or the prophet Elijah, who Jesus also met with Transfiguration, on Mount Carmel, he has an astonishing victory over the prophets of Baal. And he comes down the mountain, and Queen Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And he has to run for his life. Coming down a mountain is coming down to earth with a bump, is being confronted again by the brokenness and the need of this world. And that is what's happening with Jesus and the disciples here. They're leaving behind light and glory and a glimpse of heaven, and they're walking into arguments and sickness and pain. Verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. Again, the foot of this mountain, it's like a recap of some of the main characters we've seen in Mark's gospel. We've got a large crowd. We've got disciples. We've got teachers of the law. We've got the demon possessed, we learn in verse 17. But again, this is just confronted down from this mountain. Look at how broken this world is. And it's a chaotic scene. The crowd's excited to see Jesus, we're told. The teachers of the law are arguing with the disciples. Verse 16, when Jesus wants to know what is going on, Verse 17, a man in the crowd answers Jesus' question. He's the father of a sick boy, and he is desperate for Jesus to help him. Verse 17, a man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I ask your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. That's where the argument's coming from. The disciples were asked to do a miracle and they couldn't do it. And the teachers of the law are criticizing them and arguing with them about it. Now this bit of, of um, the gospels, the, the, the encounter that follows immediately after Jesus' transfiguration, it's actually recorded in three of the four gospels. So Matthew and Luke record it as well as Mark. It's clearly a significant moment in Jesus' ministry, but it's Mark who gives us the most detail on this father and son and the suffering they were going through that led them to Jesus. And, and you get the impression that this is an eyewitness account, that the likes of Peter were just so gripped by this father and the way he articulated his suffering that they made sure Mark knew about it and wrote it down. And in particular, there is that cry the father makes in verse 24, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. As we walk through this story, I want us to ask the question, where does this man's unbelief come from? Because I think it really connects with and speaks to our experiences of unbelief in our lives. And then we're going to look at how Jesus meets with him, and we're going to see how this man is actually, perhaps surprisingly, a picture of saving faith in Jesus. So first of all, where does this man's unbelief come from? I think Mark gives us at least two sources for the unbelief. Firstly, his unbelief comes from the fact he has suffered 
terribly. This man has suffered terribly, verses 17, 18, and 21 to 22. Again, just look at the detail that Mark gives us, the detail the father actually goes into when describing his son's suffering. So the evil spirit possessing his son, it has robbed him of speech, says the father. And then we learn in verse 25, it's made him deaf as well. This father has seen his son cut off from the world, isolated in his suffering, all because this evil spirit is tormenting him. And worse than that, the evil spirit is actually trying repeatedly to kill him. Verse 18, whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. And verse 22, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. Again, you can hear this father's pain and distress as he talks about his son, because he is powerless to help him. This is a man in, in, in great pain. He has suffered greatly. He's unable to do anything to help the son he loves so much. And I've already said the other two other gospel writers have this um, story in there. In, gospel, in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew 17, verse 15, Matthew uses the ancient Greek word for epilepsy to describe this boy's suffering, as well as agreeing with Mark that he is demon-possessed. So it seems one aspect of this evil spirit's possession of the boy is that he has epilepsy and the seizures and fits that come from that. Now, we have personal experience of epilepsy in my family, and reading this this week, I'm just, I just think anyone who has seen a loved one having a fit or a seizure, you, you get a glimpse of the powerlessness of this father. Um, you're just seeing someone suffer and writhe around, and you can't do anything to help. And you look at verse 22 and the way the father describes this experience. He, he doesn't say in verse 22, if you can do anything, take pity on him and help him, referring to his son. He says, if you can do anything, take pity on us. Help us. Because his son's suffering has become his suffering. And again, I think there's such insight here that this boy's father describes something of, if you like, the unique pain involved in parenting. His child's suffering becomes his suffering. All he wants to do is make his son's suffering stop, and he can't. I once heard a mother talk about how bound up she felt with how her children were doing in life. She said something like this. She said, as a parent, you're only ever as happy as the least happy of your children. Again, if you're a parent, maybe you know something of what she means. When your child is happy as a parent, you are happy. When your child is unhappy and suffering, you are unhappy. You are suffering. So this father says, help us, Jesus. And that has led his father to begin to doubt whether Jesus really can help them. And I wonder, can you relate to that source of unbelief? Have experiences of suffering, whether those of your own or those of people you know, led you to doubt the goodness or the power of God? Actually, my suspicion is for most of us, the answer to that is yes. Yes, we have all had those experiences, and maybe you're going through one right now. An older church leader I know once put it like this. He said, the only qualification for suffering in life is to live long enough. We all experience suffering, whether our own, whether in the lives of people we know. And actually, I've been struck recently that belonging to a local church can actually expose us to even more suffering than we might otherwise be confronted with. Well, why? Because we live in community with each other. 
because we share life together, because we want to say, please pray for me. Please, please pray for this situation, this struggle I'm having. And I know in t- there's times maybe, maybe you experience it. You maybe get an email or you hear something in a home group setting and you just go, please, Father, no more. Please, no more suffering. Make it stop. And it's someone you love. You think they've just been through enough, Lord. Make it stop. Why do we have to go through so much pain in this world? That is a source often of unbelief for us, of questions, of doubts in God's goodness and power. And another source of this man's unbelief, I want to suggest verse 18, is that he has been let down by Jesus' followers. He's been let down by Jesus' followers. Again, in one sense, a familiar picture that Mark gives us. This man is desperate for Jesus' help. He's desperate for Jesus to heal his son. But when he, he brings his son to Jesus, Jesus isn't there. Jesus is up a mountain with Peter, James, and John. So the boy's father asks Jesus' disciples to help him instead. And actually, that's not as crazy a question as we might think. If you look back to Mark chapter 6, we're told that Jesus had given his disciples authority over impure spirits. That Mark 6, 13, we're told the disciples had driven out many demons. So the disciples have driven out demons successfully in the past. This isn't a crazy request from the boy's father, but this time they can't do it. They cannot drive the demon out. The boy's father goes to them for help and they let him down. Verse 18, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. I just think that just adds to the pain of this father. He has had his hopes raised, bringing his son to Jesus. If Jesus is there, well, at least there's Jesus' disciples. Maybe they can help him, but they can't. And there his son is still suffering. He doesn't know where to go. He doesn't know what to do now. And again, I don't know whether you can relate to this source of unbelief. Do you know what it feels like to be let down by followers of Jesus, to be disappointed by other Christians? Again, I'm going to spoil it for everyone. I suspect the answer for most of us is yes. The reality is that followers of Jesus, other Christians, will disappoint you in this world. Some of the best advice I got from an old mentor figure of mine, he said, Richard, you're going to disappoint people. Full stop. Followers of Jesus, we are weak, we are limited, we are marred by our sin. And sometimes we say the wrong thing, we do the wrong thing. Sometimes other Christians hurt one another. We'll all experience what it's like to be disappointed, let down by Jesus' followers. For example, when a church leader falls into sin or abuses power and authority, When another Christian you've known for a long time just falls away, walks away from Jesus, abandons their faith, those experiences shake us, and they should shake us. So go, is Jesus really who he says he is when things like this can happen? When his followers seem so utterly unlike Jesus? I want to suggest that actually we have all been in something like this man's position of being let down by followers of Jesus. And that can add us, make us question everything, question our faith. Now, before we look at how Jesus helps this man respond to these sources, we need to ask the question, well, why were the disciples unable to drive out the demon from this man's son? We said back in chapter six, they were able to do it. 
We learn the answer in verses 28 to 29, the end of our passage this morning. Verse 28, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus replied, this kind come out only by prayer. So in verse 29, we learn that the disciples didn't pray before seeking to drive out this demon from this boy. They didn't stop to ask God to help them. They didn't depend on God's strength. They thought they could do what needed to be done in their own strength. And it turns out that is why they couldn't do it. And it says, I want to say the disciples here, they're a real warning sign to all of us. The disciples, they think they can do God's work without God's help. And again, if we're a bit too quick to go, what idiots they are, again, look at yourself. How often is this how we go about our lives? How often are we self-reliant and prayerless in our following of Jesus? Yeah, I I think it doesn't take much to imagine why the disciples did what they did. They're presented with this father. He's desperate. The, The boy is clearly suffering, going, well, we don't have time to pray. We've got to do something. Maybe again, they go, well, yeah, we've done this before. Yeah, we've got this. We've done this before a little while ago. Yeah, just, just we'll do it again. We just need to do the same things we did. The demon will go. The disciples think they can do God's work without God's help, and they are brought down to earth with a bump. It doesn't work. Again, they're a warning sign to us of how easy it is to think. It's all about us and what we do rather than about God and his strength at work. Just think about our life and mission as a church family together. Do we think we can go on serving God, following Jesus as a church family without asking God to help us? Do we need God to turn up on a Sunday morning? And do we think we're fine without him? Do we think things like Sunday club will just make disciples for Jesus of our children if we just don't pray about it? And what about our own lives? as individuals? Do we think we can be witnesses for Jesus with the people around us just by the sheer force of our personality, just by saying the right things, by doing the right things? Can we make disciples for Jesus without God's help? I think verse 29, it's a challenge to us, but it's also an invitation. Jesus is going, this type only comes out through prayer. You always hear him go, why didn't you pray? Why didn't you ask Come to me, admit you're weak, admit that you need me, ask me to help you, and I will, is the implication. Again, how, how do we need to learn to pray? Two definitions of prayer that have helped me in recent years. Very simply, prayer, it is a child asking their father for help. It's as simple as that. It's as intimate as that. Just ask for help. And prayer is the real you talking to the real God. Be honest about your struggles. Ask boldly for what you want. Actually, that is what this boy's father models for us. He doesn't say, oh yeah, I believe you totally, Jesus. He's honest. He's helped me overcome my unbelief. And there's a a saying that's doing the rounds. It's done the rounds for a long time. Don't worry, God won't give you anything in your life you can't handle. I don't want to shock people, but that's not in the Bible. God gives us plenty of things in our lives that we can't handle. 
because he wants us to come to him. He causes situations into tasks that are beyond our abilities. You cannot live as a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples for Jesus on your own, in your own strength. And the good news is you were never meant to. We're the ones who don't get it. We're the ones who think it's all on us. Jesus wants us to come to him like this boy's father in our need, admit it to him and ask him to help us. And the Apostle Paul puts it like this, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. We have this treasure, that's the gospel, in jars of clay. That's us, fragile, weak. We have it to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. God receives glory as weak people like us are honest with him. We go to him, we admit our need, and we ask Jesus for help. Because that's what the boy's father does here. It's what the disciples fail to do. It's what this suffering man does and models for them. Again, this is a picture, I believe, of saving faith. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. As that Barnabas Piper book puts it, those two phrases sort of capture the lived experience of every follower of Jesus in this world. I do believe help me overcome my unbelief. They're a cry of saving faith when we direct them towards Jesus. And we see that in the, in the conversation that this man has with Jesus. Verses 21 to 24, we can see it's a wonderfully honest conversation between them both. Verse 20, the demon-possessed boy is brought to Jesus, but, but instead of getting better, so he actually gets worse. We're told when the evil spirit sees Jesus and immediately threw the boy into a convulsion, he fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And verse 21, we see Jesus' compassion for this boy. He wants to know more. He takes an interest in this suffering. He wants to enter into the world of this father and son. And then verse 21 to 22, the father repeats his plea for help. But this time he's honest about just where he is. Verse 22, if you can do anything, Jesus, take pity on us and help us. Jesus hears the doubt in this father's voice. and He doesn't just pass over. He actually brings out into the open. He says, if you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. And it's one of those moments in the gospel where you go, oh, don't, don't say that, Jesus. That's really harsh. Are you kicking this man when he's down? Can't you see his challenge? Why are you bringing attention to the fear and the doubt in his voice? It's because Jesus wants this man and the disciples and us to see, again, what saving faith looks like. Because left to our own devices, we always imagine what saving faith in Jesus looks like. And it's something rock solid. It's free from questions and doubts. It's calm and steady at all times. And the boy's father shows us a very different picture. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. He admits on his own, his faith is weak. There is unbelief mixed in with the belief. He isn't confident that Jesus can heal his son, but he still cries out to Jesus for help. And that is where he's a picture for us. Saving faith in the Gospels, it is faith in Jesus, not ourselves. It's faith based not on our faith, but on Jesus' faithfulness. Not on what we do, but on what Jesus has done for us. Not on how we feel about Jesus, but on how Jesus feels about us. Saving faith is based on Jesus, not on us. That's what this man shows us. 
And actually, when we base it on Jesus, we're able to deal with some of those sources of unbelief we thought about earlier. The unbelief that comes from just suffering, whether our own or other people, how can I trust in God? Will we go to Jesus, the Son of God who is familiar with suffering? And just look back to Mark 8. We were there a few weeks ago when Jesus says exactly what's going to happen to him. He's going to be rejected and suffer and be killed to save us. Jesus is someone familiar with suffering. The writer of Hebrews puts it like this, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus understands our suffering. That is why we go to him. And also, even when Jesus' followers let us down, Jesus doesn't let us down. That is what this man discovers. That doesn't mean that the Christian life is plain sailing. Because actually this healing is a painful one, both for the boy and his father. If you look down verse 25, so Jesus finally does what the boy's father wanted him to do all along. He rebukes the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. Suddenly it looks like it's all gone wrong. Verse 26, The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. And we're not told how long a gap there is between verse 26 and verse 27. You just imagine what this father's feeling at this moment. It's a terrifying moment. Has Jesus just killed my son? Did, Did the demon manage to kill my son before it left? This would have been an eternity for this father. Things haven't got better in the short term. They've gotten worse. But verse 27, Jesus steps in. Jesus took him by the hand, verse 27, lifted the boy to his feet, and he stood up. The boy is alive. He's been set free. He's been healed. The healing was painful, but Jesus has done it. What does this healing have to teach us? I think it has to teach us that following Jesus means trusting in him, even when things get worse and not better. See, this is the reality of spiritual warfare in this world. We bring our lives to Jesus. Sometimes in the short term, things get worse, not better. Life gets harder, not easier. God's enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil will fight hard to keep us from trusting in Jesus. And our faith will often feel weak in those times. But this healing is another example of someone dying and rising again with Jesus. They think the boy is dead, but he puts his hand out and lifts him up to his feet. That is the picture of the Christian life we're getting in Mark. We die and we rise again. And the dying part is painful. And that's why we need that prayer of this father. Help me overcome my unbelief when it's hard, when it's painful. Help me to trust you, Jesus. So what do we learn from this man's encounter with Jesus? I think we learn that we will all experience times of questions, doubts, and unbelief. That's why Mark records these words for us. We'll all experience times when Jesus will feel absent, when people we care about will suffer, when Jesus' followers will let us down, because we live in a broken world. Mark's very honest with us about that. But in those times, Jesus wants us to come to him, to come to him and be honest with him and ask him for help. To say, I believe Jesus, but help me overcome my unbelief. 
when you're praying for someone to become a Christian and it just seems so unlikely they ever will, I believe Jesus helped me overcome my unbelief. When we pray like we did a few minutes ago for Sudan or Ukraine and nothing seems to change, you go, no, Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Keep me praying. When we pray for justice to be done in our workplace, in our family, in our schools, and nothing seems to change, Lord Jesus, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When it feels like just abandoning Jesus and living for yourself is better, you cry out, I believe, Jesus. Help me overcome my unbelief. This man shows us, don't let your questions and doubts take you away from Jesus. Let them instead drive you nearer to him, to the Jesus who is familiar with suffering, to the Jesus who will not let us down, even when it's bumpy, even when it's painful. He is worthy of our belief. And it's his faithfulness that will get us through, not our faith, but his faithfulness. It's a prayer we all need to pray. I believe Jesus, help me overcome my unbelief. That is what the Father in Mark 9 does. And in all of that, he points us to a precious truth. That saving faith in Jesus is faith in Jesus. It's not faith in myself. It's not faith in my circumstances. It's not about my faithfulness, but his faithfulness. Not about what I do for him, but what he has done for me. Not even about how I feel about him, but how he feels about me. We love because he first loved us. Saving faith in Jesus is admitting your weakness, admitting your need, admitting you cannot save yourself, and saying, help Jesus, help me overcome my unbelief. Because even when our faith is weak, Jesus is strong and able to save.